we don't want to say the M word because in Australia there's a long legacy of managers being, you know, if we do simple word association game, it's Melbourne Cup, Sydney Harbour Bridge, manager. Kate, what word comes to mind? I was going to say boss. <laughs> well, um, you're on the right zone, but the correct word is wanker. And that's come from people's experience of bossy bosses micromanaging them over their shoulder and telling them what to do. Hi, my name's Kate Sossi. I currently lead a communications, marketing and digital team for one of Australia's largest employers. I'm also an RMIT online student completing the digital transformation course. Hi, I'm Nigel Dalton. I'm currently the chief inventor at the REA Group here in Melbourne. Didn't start that way. I'm a social scientist by training. I've worked in government. I've worked in the private sector across my lifetime. I've had four or five startups. I've helped pay off the debts that resulted from all of those startups with some grown-up jobs including the current one with REA Group. You've been referred to as Australia's godfather of Agile more than once. What a title. Uh, What's the job description of that and what does it mean? It came out of a hilarious moment in a conference when uh, it was kind of like, who were the two oldest people in the room at the time? One was a a founder of ThoughtWorks, which is a big global firm that's taught so many people about working in an Agile way. And that's Roy Singham. And he looked across, saw me there and laughingly, kind of pointed me out as the godfather of Agile in Australia, and it's never been lost since. Um, my own staff call me the grandfather of Agile in Australia in deference to my grey hair. Ah, oh, excellent. There you go, another. <laughs> so um, no surprise, I'm a millennial. I fit into that age demographic. I don't know anything outside of Agile, but in my mindset and my thinking, it's just you know, potentially the best way to do things. It's faster, you know, efficiencies come into play. Um, With all that history in mind, can you explain Agile in 30 seconds? No, no, I'm joking. (laughs) Uh, Look, it's just a more sensible way of working. There's five rules at our place. Visualise the work, prioritise the work, own the work. There's no orphans. There's someone's photo on every piece of work. Talk daily and review the way your team or factory is running every week. Those five, tick those boxes, you're agile. So I personally am a big fan of your work uh, and everything that the REA group are doing and realestate.com. I think you guys have got a, a great platform. Um, yeah, I think you're very forward thinking. I know that you've been named um, one of the best places to work in Australia a couple of years in a row. So that's a, you know, a great um, accomplishment for the business. You obviously lead Agile and you are one of the, I guess, founding fathers of Agile in Australia. And yet you state that Agile is the last thing that you actually need sometimes. So what do you mean? mean by that? My reflection on Agile is the last thing you need came from we have so many visitors coming and they're all coming looking for Agile. They want to see what the Agile workplace looks like. They want to see what the after picture is in a transformation. And I have to let them down reasonably gently going, you know what, it's not actually the secret. And it's the most visibly obvious element of our way of working because you've got the boards, you've got the stand-ups, you've got the TVs linking the portals through to our ThoughtWorks team in China. I mean, it just, it looks different to most people, but it's the fourth of four, which is my cunning, it's my, this is going to be the title of my book, Agile is the last thing you need. Although having visited a few bookshops at the airports recently, I, I need to get the F word into that somewhere for it to be a bestseller. <laughs> And um, I reflect that actually, you know, we didn't. St- the, the success really began when we started focusing on management. 
And so if you imagine a, a clock face, then 12 o'clock is agile. It's an agile factory that we run. It's just incredible, the daily rhythms and the, the collaboration and the conversation and the multidisciplinary nature of it and the test and learn mindset. That's great. And it's operationally reasonably efficient and it can turn on a dime will not transform your company if you do that. You actually need to start at three o'clock, which is management. And Australia hates the word management. I mean, our own organization, even though we, you know, we talk about this all the time, you, you show me a management course on the online internal university that no, there's leadership essentials, leadership communication, leadership problem solving, advanced leadership training. We don't want to say the M word because in Australia, there's a long legacy of managers being, you know, if we do simple word association game, it's Melbourne Cup, Sydney Harbour Bridge, manager. Kate, what word comes to mind? I was going to say boss, but that's even more taboo than manager. <laughs> well, um, you're on the right zone, but the correct word is wanker. <laughs> and that's come from people's experience of bossy bosses micromanaging them over their shoulder and telling them what to do. And I'm just an exception to the rule as, at a 50, as a 55-year-old. I, you know, I had that time and I just turned around in America going, that's the most ridiculous, unproductive way to actually manage anything. You need to capture into the incredible skills and capabilities of the top three and a half inches of every human on your team. Why, why are you telling them what to do? And so we start with management and we, we are literally here to redeem the term management. And if you get well-managed people, you can get from three o'clock on my clock face to six o'clock, which is resilience. And when I find people visit us, and we probably do a thousand visitors a year at uh, realestate.com.au, they, they're coming thinking they're looking for agile. And two questions later, I've established that they are looking for resilience. They're really, and whether it's banks or telcos or government departments or international companies, they just want to have a chance at surviving. Maybe the next restructure or reorg, maybe the next rounds of cost cutting for efficiency. Maybe it's a new competitor moved into the marketplace like Facebook or otherwise. Now, resilience comes in three forms at our place, individual resilience, team resilience, and organizational resilience. And that's really what we're working on here. People who have a solid sense of purpose become resilient and resilient people are psychologically safe. And that gets us to the nine o'clock on our clock face, which is invention. And you can say innovation as well, but as a chief inventor, I prefer invention. And we innovate all the time. That's all we do. We solved the simple problems in real estate 20 years ago when we put the photographs of secondhand houses on a website. And that was it. That was like, whoa, okay, it's been nothing but complex problems ever since because searching through those was a great thing to do, but we need to be a different thing now. We need to invent what that could be on like in the third horizon of 2023, be vastly different. And inventions need to get made. So if you've got ideas, you need a factory that can turn on a dime. You know, we had a day last year where in the course of a morning, Facebook had become the world's largest rental property portal in the morning. Now, a typical Australian organisation will go, okay, well, that's a job for the, the MBA team in the strategy department, and they can come up with a strategic response in a PowerPoint pack for review by the board meeting in time for financial year 2020. Our place, there's eight people coming together at a stand-up around a whiteboard going, what does this mean for us? Because quickly falling after that was the UK. 
And then after that was Canada. And we're the last English-speaking market in the world where Facebook isn't the largest rental portal. And it's the marketplace that's done it. There are facilities within marketplace. So that capacity to turn on a dime has been our uh, – It's been that's a resilience element, but it's also a factory operational element. And the only – the bizarre consequence of having this model of management, resilience, invention, and agile operations is that if you're good – and you have great operations, it breaks your management model. And so that, so that's it. So it's a trick. It's a link bait. Agile is the fourth of four things, but it is the last one you should concentrate on. I would like to bring it back to the, I guess, your history within REA Group and you were the CIO for so long. How has your career progressed into chief inventor? And I mean, what were the steps between, you know, remaining in a role like a CIO versus um, chief inventor? CIO is a tough role to have in the 21st century because it's pretty irrelevant, to be honest. I don't, I don't think CIO is a job anymore. I think what we've got is um, kind of chief data officers, chief engineers, chief security people, those dimensions of tech. Chief information officer is something from the 90s. I was happy with that title because I can't be a chief engineer or a CTO. I'm an economist. I'm a behavioral economist by training. And so, well, you know what? Don't ask me to code anything. It was what the organization needed seven years ago, was someone who was focused on collaboration and productivity in teams and could help drive an organization massive restructure. So I went from having everyone in IT report to me to having very few people report to me and being the steward of a commercial real estate business. So I turned my hand to anything because we'd flipped it from functions to multidisciplinary, full stack multidisciplinary. CIO was a relevant role because it was about information and getting that shared. And we very quickly, I found myself taking Tom Vasavsky to almost every executive meeting who was the chief technical officer. Going, you know what, Tom, you need to explain this because our journey became a strategic change from fixing search, making search through the photos of secondhand properties to a data science and AI journey of match. Well, people don't want to work that hard. You know, I, I love that you love our app, but I'll tell you what, uh, unless you've signed into all the extra things like the people like you, like recommendations, like how can I schedule your Saturday? Here's some good properties that you probably haven't thought of. And that's in the kind of the news feed on our thing. You're not getting the most out of it. And that's become our world. And it's a data science world. And it's we had to make some massive architectural decisions. Like I'm going, I'm so unqualified to make that architectural decision. And uh, we were so lucky to have someone in the succession plan who could step into an executive role. And I was finding I was enjoying translating the story of why we were doing particular things for real estate agents. And because and it's like it's so much luck that I am I'm this kind of weirdly laconic I look like a sheep farmer, for goodness sakes, you know, like a dressed up sheep farmer going to town. I'm a Kiwi and I can say things that were technology driven. I clearly love technology with my virtual reality glasses on. You know, I could say things that it was difficult for someone who perhaps had more accountability for revenue to say and developed a story, several stories that have proved useful in bringing the industry along around artificial intelligence, around virtual reality, uh, augmented reality, around data and data science. And I, I think I've inherited a knack from my 
parents and grandparents for storytelling. So we were lucky that I could parlay my experience in a multidisciplinary world, my love of tech, into a new job. And I didn't want to be chief innovation officer because, as I said, the innovation happens every day at our place, finding product to customer, product to market fit every single day. But I'm very intrigued by invention, and which is technically defined as the mashing together of two elements and seeing what comes out. Yeah, it's an interesting point because I think uh, fundamentally now people are innovating in their daily job every day. So the fact that you don't want to be tied to the chief innovation officer title is uh, interesting Um, because I believe it's just how people are doing their own jobs now, how they are carrying out work. So I like that you've invented your own title, essentially. (laughs) It's a good good start, isn't it, when you've... Uh, figured out what job you want to do and then and managed to make it work. So that that's the essence of invention is if you mash these two things together, does it ever work? And part of it is resilience because like, we've probably tried 50 different things in two years and 49 of them have been abject failures. You touched on this uh, in an earlier answer of yours, but Agile was initially introduced for tech teams, um, but now I guess it's stretched across um, all teams, across all organisations. Um, does Agile work for everyone and every team? Is there a function or a team that potentially it might not work for in your experience that you've seen um, over time? Well, I think I have the authority to say no as the person who did quite a deal of the inventing about making software development method work for sales, marketing, finance, legal, people and culture, those kind of things. It doesn't work. It runs out very, very quickly. And I think this is our dilemma is there's a lot of agile methodologies which give certificates out to people and are not multidisciplinary. They're not drawing from all of the body of knowledge that is different ways of working. And it takes a ton of study to find all of the other ones. And it's exploding. It's incredible because of the the internet effectively has meant life cycles of products are very short, knowledge spreads very quickly. And so it's actually fascinating to see the hybridization of methods of work. But you should not be attempting pure agile outside any team that doesn't develop software. What you should do is look in the school of Agile, but also the world of of lean and systems thinking to see what things are there that are useful. And people go, oh, well, I haven't heard anything about them. Yes, because I apologize, they're locked in books, all of that knowledge. And uh, it's incredibly important that people get access to So if you're in a bank or in a government role, you know, those kind of things, you need to read the systems thinking literature, which starts with John Seddon's book from early 2000s called Freedom from Command and Control. That'll give you a set of case studies, processes, and, and a body of knowledge to do most of the things outside of software development. And software development is a team game. It's a multidisciplinary team game. It's not just for engineers. It's for product people, designers, UX. You know, the the addition of human-centered design to that whole process has taken a huge amount of the risk out of building the wrong thing. And uh, uh, look, I'm as guilty as anyone of, of building boards with visually displayed work for legal teams, those kind of things, and trying to figure out how does cycle time work in legal and what is a minimum viable product for a contract? Oh, God, there isn't really one. It's either right or wrong. That's a one or a zero. And that's when I started to doubt that this agile thing was going to be stretchable. (laughs) 
some would say that organisations that are less agile or, you know, less focused on lean and systems thinking, um, you know, they face the fear of irrelevancy in the market, that being, you know, less likely to adapt, change, keep up with their competitors. Uh, what would your advice be to those still struggling to apply these methodologies, say, you know, for organisations that are still operating in uh, PMO sense or, you know, historically, um, I guess, a slow moving project management type of um, operation? Um, or is building resilience the key and, you know, bringing back managers, is that the, the way the leadership from the top and completely changing the culture within the organisation? I have a young friend who suggested the way that we will create the amount of change required for Australia to become a resilient growth economy in the 21st century is a virus that kills everyone born before 1963 who is a white male. <laughs> uh, Thanks, Tam. And it's good that I was born in December 1963, so I escaped the, the thing. I look, there's an ounce of truth to that, that dreadful cynicism that there are a lot of stodgy white baby boomers just hanging in there. And you've got to understand they're facing a world that's at a level of change unprecedented that you've been born into and are used to. And you look at what you've seen in your working life as in terms of technologies and it's not showing any sign of change. I mean, I, I, I started work, there was no, no email. You know, files came around on a trolley at a glacial pace, yet we still managed to make decisions and do work and run companies perfectly acceptably. So you can understand why people like me or of my baby boomer generation are just hanging on to what they know because learning is painful. And that's, that's something that's very easy to forget for people like me who actually have grown to love it. And, and you clearly are keen on learning because you've been engaged in such a giant program of it. It hurts. And it wasn't until about nine or 10 years ago, I picked up the guitar seriously and I realized how awful it was to learn because you don't, it goes, it's a state of not knowing to knowing and oh my God, the vulnerability and incompetence and I, it was almost enough to put me off, but I was, you know, at that time pretty motivated to learn the guitar and wasn't going to die wondering what it was like to play in a band was my motto of the time. And I was very fortunate to have an amazing teacher and a great teacher is a pathway from not knowing to knowing. And then this, to my horror, it's practice. Like that is the secret of how to play guitar is actually get calluses on your fingers and play every day. And that's the difference between the average and the great. So once I understood what the people I was trying to get excited about learning new ways of working were actually feeling inside them. I had a hell of a lot more empathy for the, the, their barriers to learning. And I'd love to get inside that for the very senior people in banks and Telstra and all of Australia's organisations that are turning themselves inside out to adapt, whether that's because there's, you know, Facebook Libra currency dealing coming or, you know, we're all going to be on the internet rather than taking copper wire phone calls, which are the large margins or an Australia Post, which is doing an amazing job of transforming themselves as from a, a letter delivery company to a, you know, a, a delivery of anything company. They've got to, they've got to get comfortable with the very sickening feeling of how it feels to not know. Australia, what's its biggest problem? Problem to blocking transformation, people make too much money. So I could tell you, a bank that makes between six and eight billion dollars a year in profit doesn't have a problem. So they're not going to change. It you know it takes a Shane Elliott to go. You know what? We can't bank that six billion dollars forever. If there's cryptocurrencies and you know 
small peer-to-peer credit cards and all those kind of things. But he's a bit of a voice in the wilderness, to be honest. I guess that demographic in executive leadership, that being the baby boomers and, uh, you know, they are possibly holding on to how they used to do things. I mean, they're still making money. There's no problem around that. And yet they're um, coming up that 50% of the workforce is now millennial. Like you said, we have grown up with this. We are born into this. We've got this different mindset. So it's almost acting as a reverse mentorship in that, you know, the executives and the people that are at that level, I guess maybe potentially being a bit more flexible with the millennials and I guess taking their advice and, you know, their way of working and adapting to that versus, you know, potentially how it's historically gone the other way in that, you know, the executives are the ones making the decisions around the boardroom. Generational gaps are always agony. I have an 18-year-old who, if he if he's watching me navigate something on my phone or computer, I can see he is dying because I'm using. I can feel that. <laughs> I'm, I'm using these navigation metaphors. I mean, I learned PowerPoint in the the late 80s, so he's just watching me do this, going, "Oh my God, I cannot believe you're not using shortcuts, and you're still clicking there, and you're still, oh my goodness." And that, well, that, I go, wow, I've got lots to learn. But intergenerational teaching is very, very difficult. And we've had thousands of years of elders teaching younger people. And now we're trying to change the course of history where it is people who are young, close to consumers, different mindset entirely. And literally, I think you know, that's the, the, the little truism and that awful thing about a virus that kills every old white guy is the world would be fine. I think Australia would be amazing. As I look at the young women leaders, the um, you know people of all diverse cultures, wow, I think this would bring a, a, we'd have a respect for the environment. We'd have, we'd lead research and development around low water agriculture. We'd become world leaders in technologies we need today that we just don't seem to be able to get over. So hold our breath. Let's hope we don't mess the planet up in time for handing it over to you, Kate. Diversity of thought, I think that is so important for any business and um, any function. It's not up for debate anymore that if you have a complex problem to solve, a diverse group of minds, whether it's generational, uh, cultural, gender or otherwise, looking to that will solve the problem quicker and more effectively. Tons of psych research will prove this to you. Uh, the challenge is we've created, I think, less of a diversity problem and more of an inclusion problem. And, you know, Tom in our place has done a remarkable job of moving the needle in terms of the number of women working in our tech community. I, when I ran at 19%, he's close to 35 on his way to 50. And that is truly amazing. And no question, uh, look, if you counted in our thought workers in, in China, which they started from a completely different place, uh, amazing people, 50% women. And that's just the Chinese kind of culture around it. But for me, it's inclusion. I'm the first to say uh, the bro tech culture, the bro startup culture is toxic and exclusive and really tough for some people to exist within. And, that, and, I, and I think as long as my ass points to the ground, as we say in New Zealand, I will be working on the inclusion side to get the voices heard, to get the behaviours better and just make it a more attractive place for women to actually come into.
We know the future uh, world of work is going to be very different to the world that we've known and what we know now. Um, What types of job roles and titles do you think we'll start to see coming through the market? I think we'll see some pretty crazy ones. I mean, in historical terms, this is a really interesting transformation. The last great societal transformations from agriculture to urban and then kind of from urban manufacturing to urban service work, and whether this is industrial revolution number three or number four, I'm never quite sure, is we're really unsure about what the new jobs are. So it was quite obvious there were factory jobs for all those farm workers. And then it'd be quite obvious there were call centre jobs for all those former Ford car factory workers. Whether they suited was another question. With the the intrusion of uh, data and artificial intelligence and smart learning systems in the next 10 years... I'm not sure what other jobs there are for people to do. So I'm pretty sure call centres like will become an online thing where you look at a like a, we're, we're looking at some tech that is such a, a face so natural in terms of their their animation and their ability to connect that to a a, a natural language processing bot. You go, whoa, okay, well that's pretty much service taken care of in a in a messenger type format on your mobile phone by a non-human. And I'm working on R&D things that are like avatars for real estate agents that can conduct an open home for you. You can ask them any one of 10 questions and they can answer it. And that makes people more productive. But it's like, wow, what what are everyone else going to do for a job? And that I'm very interested in that. And clearly, the first step is retraining for jobs that might exist. So you talk about creating a safe and inclusive uh, space to develop what you call an REA group as an invention culture. Uh, this needs to be driven from the top down. So how do you get senior leaders to buy into and foster that type of cultural change? So we're talking about the people around the boardroom table. How do they see the value in, in having that kind of uh, culture change? Uh, one of the greatest pieces of luck or engineering, I'm not sure, for the REA group is that we've had a board of directors who are drawn from an industry that probably faced some of the, the greatest disruption in the, the last 50 years, the newspaper industry. So, of uh, course, 62% of our company is owned by News Corp. And that that is a group of people who don't want that to happen again. I think it's a common pattern, you know, having discovered what irrelevance felt like at Lonely Planet for me. I don't want that to happen again. I'll turn myself inside out and have some pretty tough conversations to avoid that. So from board level down, we've been very fortunate to have people going, you know what, I know that sounds kooky, but we're not going to get caught again in a world where it goes from print to digital and we're left standing holding a whole bunch of newsprint. And new players come in and took the rivers of gold. Of course, they were lucky enough, I guess, to invest in the real estate river of gold. But they missed cars, they missed jobs, missed junk, missed relationships, and well, at least got on the on the on the property bandwagon. At executive level, I think it's very hard to recruit di- digitally comfortable fifty-something-year-olds, and so inevitably we've got a bunch of forty-something-year-olds who have just topped out of who lived through the the beginning of the century the two you know the, the tech wreck of 2000 the crash of 2008 and the rebuild of a web 2.0 social world those people exist and they're the most precious people I think is is the 30s and 40s um, because they're guaranteed to have have had to develop some resilience to continuous change uh, 
and we're very lucky we have an average age of about 36 at the REA group overall. That's a a group of wonderful people who are bearing the responsibility of being in the sandwich generation of retiring parents. So you're thinking about the meaning of life, uh, maybe a child. Uh, a mortgage they can't afford, a house too far away. Uh, a place like REA Group is an amazing place for them to work. And we aimed to create a work environment that got the best out of those people. So, And, and unquestionably, uh, you know, the leadership of Tracy Fellows and of Owen Wilson since then, their empathy for that group and their ability to see that if you could harness those people's creativity, this would be a game changer. Well, they were right. We've gone from $11 to 100 bucks a share because we have a story that proves we are competitive against any Australian competitor and any global competitor. We have a position and a resilience and an ability to bounce back on those. And that's it. You do, there, there's just a massive shortage of those people. That that won't be a problem in ten years' time. There's going to be an incredible number of people competent at being senior managers and, and directors. It's it's you, Kate. Will be those people, and we're in great shape again. What projects are you currently working on that excites you the most and that can be one at REA? I know you sit on a lot of boards as well and advise in a consultancy point of view. So uh, what's in the works for Nigel? Very lucky at REA because there's both a social agenda and a a work agenda. And we're very cognizant that one pays for the other, but we do have a really clear picture about our, our citizenry obligations. I think when you're in the property business and you're in communities, that becomes very obvious to you. I am passionate about a couple of our social projects that we're working on, as much as I love all the stuff in the labs as well. Uh, one of those is a remarkable project called Tree O2, and it came out of a hack day where one of our partners who we'd helped build an app uh, for info exchange and one of their founders, uh, Andrew Marr, had a new problem to solve, which was he was looking at climate change in East Timor particularly and the difficulty of the, the simple problem of crediting farmers with growing trees. So we've all read the research recently about you know trees are still part of the solution to this giant carbon problem we've created for ourselves. And he's going, I think he had, a, he had an idea that if they could encourage farmers to keep the trees in the ground because they're doing that. they were being gifted them by wealthy white people from the west. They were planting them and they were teak trees and they're harvesting them after five years and selling them to furniture makers, not waiting the 30 to get a lot more money. So he said, if we could just, can we get them an, an annual amount, like 50 cents per tree per year? And he ran into difficulties of auditing that. It's like, well, is that tree still there? Is it really? And people wanted to know the full supply chain all the way from the end, from tree to donor. And he came to us and said, well, how the Ask Izzy thing kind of worked, which was finding resources for homeless people with, on their mobile phone. And, and it was a, a system. It wasn't just a list. It was a system. He said, what could we do for this? And our brilliant young engineers came up with this idea for an, a nail with an RFID tag in it. And you nail it into the tree when it goes in the ground. And an inspector with a mobile phone, which has got an RFID reader in it, or we made little RFIDs, can literally walking pace around a plantation and track every individual tree. And And we made a little thing that actually measures the tree as well, checks the species, measures the tree, and suddenly now we'll use some kind of cryptocurrency to ensure that farmer gets their 50 cents per tree per year. They're going to leave them in the ground. And then we realize 
wow, if we tap this into the carbon trading platforms globally because it's audited and works, we've just revolutionized carbon trading, which needs to be done in giant chunks and blocks. It can't be done per tree. And my car- tree planting, I mean, my family in New Zealand have a ju- uh, you know, plantation that they've put in, which could f- fit into the same thing. And people could buy a tree in my brother-in-law's farm with just with these nails and these things. So super proud of that because, I mean, that's getting to an issue that I think is a planetary issue. Uh, something that we've spoken about a lot today is resilience. Um, can you talk to me about why you're so passionate about it? There's three dimensions to resilience in the way we think is individual resilience, there's team resilience, and there's organizational resilience. And the individual resilience was a lesson I learned personally and in going to the gym. So I'd for a long I mean, I love sports and all those kind of things, but I had an association in my mind between going to the gym and losing energy, spending energy. And I, I learned from um, my my boss Tracy that because I'd see when I did go to the gym, she was there, and I'm going, "How are you? Why do you go to the gym every day? You're working like a 14-hour day. What's going on?" And she had to sit me down and go, "Actually, you gain resilience by expending energy." And my world changed. Like the ability to actually shoulder the load became much stronger when I became fitter. And that individual resilience extends to mindfulness. It extends to spending time switched off in the digital world, those kind of things. And if you're not individually resilient, you can't bounce back. And that's the definition, bounce back ability. Team resilience, we measure at our place by not if we, if we take one person out of your 10 person squad, pretty much every squad's fine. Take two, most melt. And so we measure that's the N minus two concept. If we took two people out of your team, how would you go? And it's a reminder to us to share the knowledge, to be aware that that does happen statistically over time in terms of turnover. We're about, you know, I don't know, low teens in terms of turnover. So you might well lose a couple of people from your team this year. Don't block yourself out to that being a possibility. Share the knowledge and build a team that can bounce back accordingly. And organizationally, it's those mornings when you discover on the wire that Facebook's now the number one listing uh, portal in America for rental properties that, okay, uh, we've got to do something about this. And, and, and some people think resilience is like being a granite rock, you know, you're resilient to change. That's the wrong definition. And uh, my wife's a Kung Fu teacher and she's very solid on the understanding of what resilience is within that body of knowledge and and within Kung Fu. And it's about the ability to absorb and rebound and to use the energy that's coming at you in in another way. And, you know, um, that is a very good definition of resilience. And and, and organizations desperately need it, but they must make their teams and their individuals resilient if they think they're going to actually be able to bounce back from all of this disruption and change that's coming our way. Great. Well, I would like to thank you for coming in and chatting with us today. It's been my absolute pleasure. Thanks, Kate. It's been fun. And I look forward to seeing you on the front page of the AFR or some other journal in the future, CEO of an organisation of your own. The Pickle was brought to you by RMIT Online. Change the way you think about learning. We have. Study short courses and full degrees online on your terms. Head to online.rmit.edu.au to find out more.